Man, it's good to see you. Can I just say, like, I love you guys. Man, by the, this time on Sunday morning, I am so full. My heart is so full. Just talking with people and just hearing what God's doing in their life. I love being a part of this faith family, and I hope you do too. And this is an exciting time for us as we're starting a new series uh, about our vision. Uh, we're laying out a framework or a blueprint of really defining who we are. And what we put our time and energy and efforts towards, and this really is the product of several months of our elders, our pastors, our staff teams, uh, talking about these things and really trying to sharpen uh, the vision and ready to lead us into a new day, an exciting day uh, for Berean Baptist Church. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. I uh, encourage you to be a part of this series. Now, when we, when we mention the word vision, some of you will have the tendency to run immediately to stats and numbers and goals and strategies, because that's kind of the world in which you live. But I would say, hold on just a second, we'll get there, but we have to start with a why. In fact, think about a vision in this way. First of all, there's a why. There's a purpose for why you do what you do. If somebody were to ask, why does Berean exist? What would that answer be? And would your answer be the same as your answer be the same as your answer? And then there's the how. What's the process that we use to bring that why, that purpose about? And then there's the what. What do we do? Like what ministries do we offer? What programs do we have? What events do we have? And so those things get answered, but, but you don't start with a what, you start with a why because the why informs your how and your what. Are you confused yet? All that was to simply say this, we're going to start this morning with our purpose, a purpose statement that we have crafted and believe in. You've heard me mention it before, you just didn't know it was our purpose statement, and it is the defining statement of all that we will do, but we're going to build from it. And here's the purpose statement, here's our why, Berean exist to see our lives, our community, and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. I get excited every time I read it, y'all. It's like, yes, we exist. If somebody asks you why in the world are you here, the answer is we exist because we want to see lives, our community, and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. That's our why. And it ought to be your why. It ought to be why you give. It ought to be why you serve. It ought to be why you're committed to this place. And so our foundation here that we're going to build our vision from, we're not going to run to the strategy first. We're going to deal with the why, and that's the gospel, to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. And we'll build on this. No, not add to the gospel. We'll build from this in the weeks to come. So bring your seatbelt every week because it's going to be a blast. What I want to do this morning is I want to flesh out that purpose statement. I want to, to give us an example in the Bible of that why, of this vision. When you ask me, what's your vision? What do you see? Lives transformed by the power of the gospel. What does that look like? And that's what we're going to answer this morning. So let's look here at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'd ask you also to have your finger in Acts chapter 9. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Acts chapter 9, but our scripture reading will 
be 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 12. And so if you're able, please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. You know this by now, but I believe every single word of this book is true. Every word. I believe it is breathed out by God. That's why we stand. Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." Oh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So to the King of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this time that we get to be together. I, I love our worship time. And pray, Lord, that you would, instru- you would strengthen us, encourage us, help us see clearly uh, the purpose that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, they were big, boring And according to their slogan, moving at the speed of business. The problem was they weren't moving fast enough because they were blown away by all their competitors. So they decided to change their slogan. And they changed their slogan from moving at the speed of business to what can Brown do for you? You know what I'm talking about? Today, UPS is one of the leading shipping industries They were just a lowbrow discount store. It didn't matter how hard they tried, they couldn't stand out among their competitors. Everything they did, they couldn't gain traction in the market, so they decided to change their contracts. And they entered into some exclusive contracts with some high-profile designers. And today, Target is one of the leading retailers in America. In 1982, they had no money. They were $90 million in debt, and they were just about to disappear from the highway until their leaders got together and decided to change their product. Today, Harley-Davidson is one of the leading names in motorcycles. These examples, and there are many others that we could give, are examples of what we call rebranding. It's when an organization or a company decides to change their identity or or, or change their their name in some way. Uh, It it might be a slogan. It might be a strategy. They they may actually change their name. Like, how many of you are familiar with Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web? Not many of you. You know it as Yahoo. You're probably not that familiar with Dotson. Some of you are. You old people, you old people, you know it as Nissan. You probably don't fill your refrigerator with Brad's drink. It's because you know it as Pepsi. 
We are surrounded by organizations and individuals that try to change the external so that they can be seen in a different light, but the company is still the same or the individual is still the same. Now, I give you those examples because when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, you are dealing with a man writing these words who has gone through a name change. Most people knew him as Saul, persecutor of Christians, blasphemer of Jesus, and those were his good qualities. Most of us know him by a different name, and that is Paul, church planter, writer of much of the New Testament, preacher, great apostle. But I would submit to you that this name change was not an issue of rebranding where the external was simply changed. It is a perfect example of gospel transformation. The kind of transformation that we want to see in our lives and in our community and in our world. Not some type of external conformity, but a heart change. Because that's what the gospel does. Notice how the Apostle Paul here, and I'll say Paul or Saul, I'll be back and forth, so just forgive me. It's habit, all right? Paul here, when he's writing to Timothy, addresses his former life. How he was opposed to God. Verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now often it's easy to forget that Saul had a very dark, dark past. Saul was from Tarsus. A little metropolitan area north of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He actually studied under Gamaliel. That doesn't mean much to most of you, but it'd be like taking guitar lessons from Jimi Hendrix or art lessons from Michelangelo. He studied under the best, and he was not just a student. According to Philippians chapter 3, he was top of the class. He was an honor student. He had devoted his entire life to Judaism, which is why when Christianity started to spread, and even more so Jews started to be converted to being Christians, he wanted to shut it down. He would do whatever it took to stop them. I mean, after all, the book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, so why in the world would you want to support a movement that has a crucified man as its leader? And so the apostle Paul said, let's shut it down. And that's exactly what he sought to do. Look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, Saul approved of the execution, that is of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, who's that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So Christians were called followers of the way. Men or women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul approved of the execution of a Christian leader, Stephen, very loved and respected by the Christian church, and Paul approved of his death. Not only that, Luke records for us that Saul here, like a tornado ripping through the Midwest, ravaged Christians. He would tear families apart. He would pull men and women apart, and he would throw them into prison. And as if that wasn't bad enough, thirdly, Luke tells us that like an animal on the prowl, Saul breathed threats and murder towards Christians. He was a a bad man. It's why when you watch the news and you see Islamic terrorists killing Christians, your prayer does not need to be only for justice, though that's true. Your prayer had better be do for them what you did for Saul. Because that's who you're looking at. Saul was to Christians what Ted Bundy was to women. And he had no problems with it. Now there's a great risk in using Saul or Paul as an example because we might be tempted to say, well, that (laughs) doesn't apply to me. I mean, I'm bad, but I ain't that bad. I mean, I've not done any of the things that Saul did, and that's because you're looking at it from the wrong angle. Do you understand that nobody apart from Christians would have seen Saul as doing anything wrong? He fit right in. They would have said, oh, Saul, we know him, that zealous young man who's passionate about Judaism, who's doing what the law allows him to do. He's a good young man. He's a leader. You see, the issue is not, am I as bad as Paul? The issue is, am I for Jesus or not? There is no, well, there's the really bad people, and then there are a little bit better people, and then they're so-so, and then we start getting to good. No! You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. And if you're not 100% for Jesus, you're more like Saul than you think. In fact, we might take it a little bit deeper to say the truth is there are things in my life that are like Saul. Anybody like want to just admit that there are some attitudes in our life or maybe relationships in our life or decisions in our life that are opposed to the ways of God? You see, you don't have to do the thing Saul did to have the same heart he had. Or maybe there's some of you in this room who have never bowed the knee to Jesus and trusted Him as Savior and Lord. You see, we're more like Saul than we think. What I'm trying to show you is that Saul's opposition to God serves as an example of the many things that are in opposition to God in our lives, in our community, and in our world. And the question is, is there hope? And I am so glad you asked that question. Is there hope? Man, it's what we breathe here, isn't it? You better believe there's hope for lives and community in a world that stands in opposition to God. Notice what Paul will write to Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, with all that context, with all that weight, you need to read these verses and like want to jump out of your seat. 
Listen to what he writes. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he, what? Judged me faithful, appointing me to his service? But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Is there hope for anybody who's in opposition to God? Yes, it's the transforming power of God. In fact, notice what he says in verse 16. I'm getting excited, y'all. Just, I'm getting excited. Verse 16, I can't help it. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And here's what I believe some of those are in this room right now. In other words, Paul is saying, if God can transform me, he can transform anybody. There is no one in this room, no one in this community, no one in this world that is outside the reach of God's grace. Do you believe that? No, I don't care how messed up your marriage is. I don't care what skeletons are in your closet. I don't care what shows up on your background check. I don't care how squeaky clean your self-righteous life is. God has the power to transform you. The Apostle Paul says, my life serves as an example of the transforming power of God for anybody. Nobody's out of reach. And how did God do that in Saul's life? Back to Acts 9. He's walking down the road to Damascus. He's he's trying to get papers so that he'll have the authority to hurt more Christians. And he sets off with his great education, all of his buddies that think he's awesome, this great leader of Judaism, and a heart full of pride. And God stops him in his tracks. Here's what's interesting. A man doing what was right in his own eyes will actually have his eyes shut by a blinding light of the glory of Jesus. And in that moment, God is going to transform this man in three ways. There's three things that are going to happen, and I'm just going to tell you right now, when this happens in your life, transformation begins The first thing God does is He exposes Saul's sin. Look at verse 4. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which I imagine Saul would probably say, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting Christians. I don't have a problem with God. It's these Christians I don't like. But Saul has to learn something, and it's what we need to learn. Before sin is an offense to anyone else, it is an offense to God. Do you remember Psalm 51 when David, after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba, he cries out to God and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. You ever read that and been like, that's a little insensitive, don't you think, David? I mean, didn't you sin against Bathsheba? What about 
the husband you had killed. Don't you think you sinned against him a little? And what about the whole kingdom that you're ruling? Don't you think you sinned against them? But David knew then what Saul's going to learn in the road. Sin is first and foremost an offense to God. And truthfully, brothers and sisters, if we want to see our lives and our community and our world transformed by the power of the gospel right here, we're going to have to call sin, sin. See, the the issue is, come on, God teach us. Light has come into the world, but the world rejects the light. Why? It loves its darkness. We don't want to call it what it is. We want to hold on to it. And so we have to be exposed like the light exposed Saul on that road. And you got to give up your darkness and call your enemy what your enemy really is. Namely, it is not your bad parenting. It is not you need more education. It's not you have a low self-esteem. Though those may be contributing factors, your real problem and my real problem is the power of sin in our life and only the power of Jesus can overcome it. And until we're honest about that, like laying on the dirt road honest about that, transformation will never take place in your heart, much less the world. God exposes Saul. Why are you persecuting me? That's your real problem, Saul. And then notice how he responds. He responds with surrender, verse 5. And he said, Why or who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I love that word. It's interesting that Saul uses this. Who are you, Lord? What does Saul know in that moment? You ain't in control, buddy. You think you're in control of your life. You think you're living life on your terms. You think you're just going to walk right on up to Damascus and do your thing. Well, I got news for you. I'm Lord. And Saul knew it. He saw in that moment that he had to surrender because sin wants to make us all lords, but there's only one Lord. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, when when he gives his testimony, he actually includes something else that Jesus says here. Why do you kick against the goads? What's a goad? I know you came to church. I hope we talk about goads. Like, that sounds exciting. A goad was an instrument, a tool, a wooden tool with a sharp end that farmers would use on their oxen to keep them in line. As they were plowing a field, the oxen would want to go different directions, and so that goad would keep them. It would, in fact, if they tried to get out of line, it would, it would dig into them, and it would cause pain so that they would be led. The problem was these stubborn animals, none of us could relate, didn't want to be led. They wanted to go their own way. And so you know what they would do? They would kick against the goads, hoping that they could break free and live life on their terms. And Jesus says, why would you cause more pain for yourself? 
It is your own sin, Saul, that has brought you to this point. Why are you so unwilling to be led? Why do you kick against the goads? And Saul, in this moment, surrenders. And I wonder if there's some of us this morning in this room who are unwilling to be led in certain areas of our life. And this morning, God is calling us to surrender. Come on. Is it a relationship that you're unwilling to be led in? Is it your finances that you're unwilling to be led in? Is it some behaviors and decisions you're making that you're unwilling to be led in? Or are you here and you're unwilling to bow the knee to Jesus because you don't want to surrender your life? Like C.S. Lewis, many of you know I like C.S. Lewis. He, he, he was a, 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 just a brilliant mind in medieval literature. He had a hard early life. His mom died when he was nine. He was wounded in World War I, and he spent most of his early life as a committed atheist. The problem was most of the people that he liked in medieval literature were Christians. One of those was a good friend of his, J.R.R. Tolkien. Any Lord of the Ring fans? Okay. Five of you. Okay, good. (laughs) And Tolkien and Lewis would often go to the local pub and they would debate Christianity. Lewis was always trying to discredit the Bible, even though he knew there were things in the Bible that were historically true. And he would look at Tolkien and he would say, it's a myth, it's a myth, it's a myth. And one night they went for a walk. Tolkien looked at Lewis and he said, but what if this myth is true? And it haunted Lewis. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't get that question off his mind. What if this myth is true? And two weeks later, he surrendered. And here's what he wrote. I love, this is great. He says, Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A true story. A myth working on us in the same way as others but with this tremendous difference. It really happened. (laughs) And all that resistance, all that rebellion, all that no, 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 became yes in a moment of surrender. And his life was changed forever. One of the most brilliant minds the church has ever known. What is that thing that you are kicking against the goads? Because until your sin is exposed, until the sin of our community and our world is exposed, and until surrender happens, transformation will not take place. But, oh dear friend, when you come to that point of brokenness and surrender and you stop kicking, do you know what meets you in that moment? Amazing, mind-blowing, unbelievable, earth-shattering grace. Notice the third thing that happens on the road, verse 6. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Now you may say, that doesn't sound like grace. Pastors, he's like twisting it here. That's not a gracious verse. Well, first of all, you could say it's gracious because God didn't kill him. (laughs) That's gracious. I mean, after all, that's what he was doing to God's kids, I've told you before, you mess with my kids, I take that as God calling me into prison ministry. (laughs) You know, I mean, listen, God, God could redirect my ministry, I'm fine with that. 
He's killing God's kids. And God doesn't return the favor. But that's not why I say that Saul experienced grace on the road to Damascus. It's what verse 6 or how verse 6 is defined. When it says, you will be told what to do, now look at verse 15, and that tells you what he's going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump off the stage on this one. This is awesome. But the Lord said to him, go, that is to Ananias, go for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What? (laughs) Who treats sinners like this? Are you tracking with me? The grace of God took a man who wanted to destroy Christians and made him one. But not only that, the grace of God took a man whose life mission was to wipe out Christianity and now his life mission is going to be to spread Christianity to the ends of the earth. That's the transforming power of the grace of God. It will mess you up (laughs) in glorious ways. Grace is not you need help and God feels sorry for you and so he'll give you a little help. Grace is love your enemies. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Which is why until the grace of God gives you a headache, you don't understand the grace of God. Because it's mind-blowing. Jesus loves His enemy in the road to Damascus. You've been persecuting me. All right. I'll just make you the greatest missionary the world has ever known. How about that? I'm telling you, that's how the grace of God works, folks. We're dealing with something powerful. We are. Paul knew it. What is at the core of the gospel message? It's a grace that's radical and it transforms you forever. It's what I want to see. You ask me about vision, I'll tell you vision. And I'm not going to start with stats and numbers and goals and strategies. I'm going to tell you what I want to see. What I want to see is lives transformed by the power of the gospel. Paul never get over this. He's going to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I labored more than them all, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. He's going to, like every letter he writes is going to start with grace to you. And he's going to end with grace to you because he never gets over grace. And I'm not going to let you get over it either. Um, Now, some of you in this room might say, but I've been a Christian for 20 years and 25 years. You know, I'm, I'm too old for transformation. First of all, just don't say that to me, okay? Just don't say that to me. 
But if you're here and you're thinking, well, this makes sense because Saul is being converted to Paul. It's the transformation of a Christian. Well, might we take some wisdom from this same man, not as a young man, but as an old man? Anybody applies to that in this room? Don't raise your hand. An old man writing from a Roman prison. What does he say? Most of you know the verse, Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Berean, maturity is not arriving. Maturity is realizing you haven't arrived and you're straining forward to know more of Jesus and to look more like Jesus. This isn't just something that happened to Paul when he was a young man on the road to Damascus. It's something that's still happening to Paul when he's an old man in prison. We never go beyond the transforming work of God until that transformation is complete when we see Jesus face to face. It is like John Newton. You've heard me say this before, and if you're around long, you'll probably hear me say it many more times. He was a slave trader. He struggled with his past. He, out of that, wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wrench like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And at the end of his life, he wrote in his journal, I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who I one day will be. But I am not who I was. And it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. We see here a life that is in opposition to God becomes a life that's transformed by God. And I'm submitting to you, this is real and symbolic for the purpose of our faith family. And why is that the case? We close with this. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus is came into the world. Stop right there. What was the why of Jesus? What was the purpose of Jesus? He came into the world to save sinners. Like anybody just want to say, Woo-hoo, hallelujah, like praise God, because I don't know if you know this, but I know this, like inside voice coming, outside voice, and I belong in that category of sinner, and Jesus' purpose of coming to earth was to come in to get me out. Jesus came in to get me out of a sinful way of thinking. Jesus came in to get me out of a sinful relationship. Jesus came in to get me out of a hopeless future. And if the purpose of Jesus was to come here to transform the world, then it's our purpose as well. You see, the why of Berean is to be the why of the gospel. We are to be about the very thing Jesus came to do. Amen? 
And that is to see our lives and our community and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. Look at it with me one more time. I'm going to say it till you have it memorized. Say it with me. Berean exist to see our lives and our community and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. We want to see this happening all around. And what would that look like? Dream with me for a moment as we close. Imagine a place where families are strengthened rather than falling apart, where healthy sexual relationships are normal, where husbands exercise loving leadership and wives godly submission, and it's not controversial. Where corruption and greed decreases and care for the poor is increased. Where we see vocations as a calling from God for the good of others. Where retirees see retirement not as an opportunity to coast, but an opportunity to serve Jesus more. Where unity is increased within the church, where pastors proclaim unashamedly the truth of the gospel so that we see legalism and moralism and liberalism destroyed. Where unreached people groups are now given access to the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And Saul's walk in our doors every weekend with things in their life in opposition to God only to experience the transforming grace of God and become a passionate participant to the mission of God. Yes, that's what I want to see. That's what we're about, and that's what we march forward to. But if we're going to see those kinds of things happen, it will not happen through a rebranding. It will only happen through a new birth. But take it from a murderer turned missionary. That's just the kind of thing our God does. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your amazing grace. Oh, how amazing. Oh, that everyone in this room would know its transforming power. And there may be some in this room right now that there, there is an issue in their life they're kicking against the goads with. And I just pray for a sweet, broken surrender Oh, that this would be a Damascus Road moment for some in this room. For all in this room in some way or another. Jesus, You came into the world to save sinners. I pray that there are some in this room that bow the knee right now and trust You as Lord and Savior of their life. Others, I pray that You would take them deeper in their growth in You, a growth in grace. God, do Your work. Help our purpose statement not just be something we put up on a screen, but something we experience in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.